so I um, use the term the tightrope generation. So people who are carers without safety net, essentially. Um, and I, you know, think that we need to talk more about people who are caring without a safety net um, because we know just from the numbers of people in this country who don't have any children at all, let alone all the other people who may not be able to rely on their family for support for whatever reason that we're talking about, you know, millions of people. Um, and yet our system is still firmly predicated on you will have somebody, probably your child, they will run around and sort things out and the state will only step in as a last resort when things get far too difficult. But up until that point, it's, it's kind of down to your children and down to your family. Welcome to the Full Stop Podcast with Berenice Smith from Walking Our Shoes, Sarah Lawrence from After the Storm, and me, Michael Hughes from Married and Childless. If this is your first time here, our podcast is centred around supporting the Childless Not By Choice community. Our aim is to be a focal point for the community and with our special guests, show you how to manage your grief and the issues specific to us. And by example, show that a full and happy life can be had without those children we dearly wanted. Now this episode we are focusing on ageing without children, something the girls and I are acutely aware of and lately has become a real passionate subject for me and yes I get a little bit worked up in this episode. Now we were extremely fortunate to have as our guests Kirsty Staunton, Denise Jackson and Ming Ho. Let's get Sarah to introduce them. Right, morning everyone. Well, I say morning, we're recording this in the morning. Uh, welcome to the latest episode of um, Full Stop Podcast. We are focusing today on ageing. Um, now, we know from personal experience that ageing is quite a concern for our community, not just in terms of us ageing without children in our, in our lives, but also in terms of caring for our, our ageing parents. I know that both Michael and myself are. Um, you know in, impacted by looking after our parents uh, as they age and it brings up the fact that you're not going to have somebody looking after you potentially as you age so it's got a lot of a lot of stuff that it brings up for our community and that's why we wanted to talk about it today in this episode so joining us today we've got Ming Ho and uh, Ming Ho is a writer a tv film and um, basically a dramatist uh, she's got a lot a wonderful blog that uh, Berenice has been reading and, and can really recommend called Dementia Just Ain't Sexy, um, which I think we, <laughs> we can all um, chime with. Denise, who is joining us, Denise Jackson, is semi-retired, but she is a former care, carer and she works in the voluntary sector now um, and she works a lot with unpaid carers. Uh, and then lastly, we have Kirsty Staunton from Aging Without Children, AWOC, who um, obviously focuses a lot on our community and how we are aging without children but it does affect other people as well um, not just this community so it brings in that that interesting aspect that we aren't alone in potentially aging without children to look after us in later life so welcome everyone thank you for joining us we really appreciate it is it useful for me to give some context people yeah i think so aging yeah. children yeah okay yeah. i should do that okay um, I mean, I think one of the things 
One of the really interesting thing about um, aging without children is what we found was that becoming a carer was the real trigger point for people contacting us. So for most people, they're not really, you know, there are different, as we all know, there are different routes to, to aging without children. And that can be whether you don't have any children at all, or that can be, you know, being estranged from your children or whatever. But for most people, when they first contacted us, it was when they became a carer for their parents was the first time they came, came up against the system, so to speak. So it was the first time they kind of came up against the health and social care system and were very much like, oh my goodness, this is a nightmare. This is a mass of, you know, different organisations and they don't talk to each other and there's endlessly, you know, like repetitive form filling and repetitive questions and, you know, like an expectation that you'll just have somebody who's kind of going to run around and find out information and, you know, kind of act as a go-between between all these different organisations. So, so that, you know, people, that was the first, I think, real, that's the first real time a lot of people are like, okay what what what's going to happen to me when i get older the second thing and and something that i didn't realize until i started to kind of like really dig into this was when when carers are talked about a lot of the times when we see the narrative around carers it's around um the sandwich generation so people who are caring for their parents and people who are caring for their, for their teenage children at the same time um and, and it's something i i'd kind of never really i just kind of accepted that that was they were the majority of people and then when I started to kind of like look into some to some research it, it actually I actually found out that um, people aging without children are 30% more likely to be caring for their parents so actually people aging without children are massively more likely to be carers and yet again in, in narratives around caring and carers they're often very very invisible um, which is quite ironic because, you know, I think certainly Carers UK was started by a, a childless woman um, who'd been expected to care for, you know, give up her life and care for her parents. So it, for me, it, it's kind of really interesting that um, despite being this kind of like massive group of carers, that it's still a group of carers that isn't really talked about. And then you add that to the fears that people have from caring for their own parents and what that brings it it's kind of really interesting from that kind of policy which is which is kind of how i tend to look at things is you know like what what's the policy what's the impact what are the things that we need to change in order to make this better um but yes yeah, so it was kind of like really fascinating so i um used the term the tightrope generation so people who are carers without a safety net essentially um and i you know think that we need to talk more about people who are caring without a safety net um, because we know just from the numbers of people in this country who don't have any children at all, let alone all the other people who may not be able to rely on their family for support for whatever reason, that we're talking about, you know, millions of people. Um, and yet our system is still firmly predicated on you will have somebody, probably your child, they will run around and sort things out and the state will only step in as a last resort when things get far too difficult but up until that point it's it's kind of down to your children and down to your family i think that's very true um my i lost my grandmother last november and she had four children plus all of us grandchildren great grandchildren and it was collectively the force of the family that enabled her until 
I think probably the October before the November she passed to actually stay at home, albeit probably not in a particularly safe way, but certainly there were, you know, daily visits because the caring system isn't necessarily structured to be always that reliable. Um, you know, that's just the unfortunate part of how it is. Um, but it brought home to me that, okay, I think it brings home to a lot of people in our situation, in our demographic, that, that the amount of energy it takes for a family collectively to do that and if you haven't got that then where do you what what happens and it's a general an absolute fear it's and I live with that fear a lot my husband is older than I am so I know at some point you know maybe probably I'm going to be on my own so I've placed an awful lot more values now on friendship really really close friendships because i'm not quite sure what will happen next with me um and it alters your entire kind of outlook on life um we see it so often i think in in our communities um but also again you say how broadly it can affect other demographics not just childlessness but there's estrangement there's so many reasons why people may find themselves in this situation and statistics are quite shocking aren't they yeah, I think it's um, kind of my, my parents, I'm sort of, they've got various health problems. We've talked about it before off air, haven't we? But it's kind of, it has brought it home. I think there is, when I talk to friends in this community as well, there is this kind of ginormous elephant in the room that, yeah, you know, you're looking for your, you're looking after your parents, but there is this, well, who's going to do that for me? And it's that you, you can't just assume there is going to be somebody for you. It does mean building up a network, but... I guess my fear is how who's going to look who's going to look after me if I'm unwell or you know there was dementia in my family as well like Ming talked about in her blog. What happens if I'm not compass mentors? That's a real concern for me. Yeah. Yeah. Ming, yeah. Yes. I, um, what you said that that's interesting because we all get told to um, assign a power of attorney. But who do you assign a power of attorney to if you haven't got any close relatives? And that was that was really interesting. I thought that the way that Kirsty described it about being the tightrope generation. I've long had an image in my mind about being both the tightrope walker and the safety net. And I thought if anything goes wrong, and, and this goes back to when I was looking after dad, because um, I, I looked after my elderly dad for about only for about 18 months, but it it's had a long lasting impact really, although that's going back, uh, he passed away 12 years ago now. Um, but that's, that's something I'll probably just talk about a bit later. But um, yeah, this whole thing of being on your own, of people assuming that there's close family uh, or close friends who will put everything aside if you're in that situation where you perhaps need somebody to look after you after an operation or, you know, there's a sudden accident or something that, that's not been, been foreseen. And for so many people, there just isn't somebody there. And, and the other thing that always strikes me is that even though there's lots, I've got loads of really, really good friends, and, and that's come out a lot during the um, pandemic situation. But at the end of the day, I'm nobody's first priority. And there's always a danger that you know, if I need help, there might be somebody else closer to them 
um, either just just closer as a friend or, or a, a closer relative who needs help at the same time and that person is quite naturally going to get the help because they will be the, the priority and I can't I can't argue with that but I think I think that is the heart of it that you nobody's in this situation you're nobody's first priority yeah. I, I think that that came home to me um, very much when when 7-7 happened if you remember the day when there was the tube bombings in London and and another one potentially two weeks later and it was the first time I'd gone back into London Central I live in North London and I'd gone in for an appointment um, two weeks after 7-7 and everything was shut down again and we thought it was the same thing happening and I had to go and you know shelter in, inside a building for several hours while there were helicopters outside and things and it did really strike me that actually there's nobody who would I was thinking how am I going to get home even from here I've got to try and walk all the way home because all the transport had shut down and for most people they might think well I'll just call my husband or my kids or you know and I had nobody that that I could you know, call and, and, and ask them to put, basically put their life at risk just, just to give me a lift home, you know, and that seems a very kind of simple thing at the time, but it makes you think about the wider context and very much that you are nobody's first priority. Um, I, I've looked after my mum. My mum had dementia for probably over 20 years from the earliest symptoms, and I'm an only child and she was an only child and my dad died when I was a student. So we'd had 20 years of me going back and forth. Um, I live in London, she lived in Gloucestershire about um, two and a half hours away. And again, she was very independent in herself to begin with. She had a few physical issues, um, you know, just things like arthritis where she had a few falls. Now I think Denise, when you say about emergencies like an operation or something, I think yes, that's bad enough, but actually there are structures in place for those because social services will help you with those. There will be a GP surgery who knows about you having had an accident, you might be admitted to hospital. Um, I think over the years, what I found was actually much more difficult to deal with was long-term degenerative disease where there is no, you know, daily emergency from a social services point of view but you, you as the carer who doesn't even realize that they're a carer is firefighting crisis after crisis on a daily basis so you are the person who's principally responsible but there are no there are no services that are there geared for you because as far as um, they're concerned it's just as they put it social care it's just a bit of help with this and that what what people don't realize is the huge amount of advocacy that goes into even quite simple things and even if there are services available or benefits or you know any kind of state support very often people don't even know about it and if they're a vulnerable person who doesn't have cognitive capacity um, you need somebody who who does see them as being their first priority who is going to spend all of the time doing that stuff for them and it's not something that you can pay a stranger to do um, it's not something you would go to a solicitor for it's not something really that you could even rely on even quite close friends for because it's looking into your financial affairs it's doing quite mundane things it's like going to the cash point for you um, it, and, and increasingly it gets to be um, intimate personal things as well when my mum got to the stage where she didn't realize quite what she was doing and you know she wasn't keeping up with her personal hygiene I had to find her a residential care place behind her back because she couldn't uh, understand that she needed that and and I found that hard enough myself because I don't have a partner and I don't have children 
but it, it's really brought it home to me what a wealth of, of effort and time and love and care went into all of those years. And I, I'm very much aware that there isn't anyone that I could rely on to do that for me. You can't rely on even your, your friends that you've known for years. You wouldn't want them doing the most intimate stuff. You can't expect them to do a lot of legal and financial stuff. Um, I've got people that I've nominated as my attorneys now, but even since we drew up those documents probably 10, 15 years ago, I'm aware that their life circumstances have changed and they've got other responsibilities that I don't really want them to have to deal with all of that stuff. Um, even just things like clearing a house. You know, my mum went into a home and I had to clear our family home and sell it and get maintenance works done and deal with all sorts of stuff. That took me 18 months because I wasn't living there. Um, you know, I've had to move her into two different homes. I had to clear her room after she died, organize her funeral, do all of her probate. Um, and obviously I do that because I loved her and I always wanted her to have the best of everything. But it is a, it is a full-time job really. And you know, a close family member will do that because you know, it's just an instinct and you, you know, there is no one else obvious to do it. But if you are a person who doesn't have that network ready-made, um, it's very hard to replicate even a fraction of that, let alone all of it. I think it comes, and this kind of really resonates um, with some of the stuff that we were talking about yesterday, I think, when we were talking about our conversations around how do you message more about this. Um, and we were talking about it being an awkward conversation. Because a, a lot of the time, I mean, it was interesting when I first started, you know, campaigning around ageing without children six years ago, it was a conversation it was a message that nobody really wanted to hear you know and although there has been some shift on that it still remains a conversation that we don't want to have it's a conversation that we don't want to have on an individual level and it's a conversation that we don't want to have on a societal level or a policy level um and i think one of the reasons for that is exactly as as you know like we've we've all said is that to actually put in place something for people who do not have that that close family network of support is actually very difficult it's very difficult to replicate that um, I mean often I I remember having a conversation on Twitter once about the limitate of, of friendships and the limitations of friendships and communities um, because there's lots of things at the moment about the solutions to things being in the community and I think there's definitely that's definitely true some of it is in the community but I think you're right, there's this kind of, you know, what you can expect of your friends. Also bearing in mind that for a lot of us, our friends are the same age as us. And therefore, while we might sort of have be able to say, oh, yes, well, you know, while I'm in my 50s and 60s, you know, power of attorney to my friends who are also in their 50s and 60s. When we're in our 80s or our 90s, our friends will probably be in their 80s and 90s too. And and feel you know like and you know if they're still around probably be in a position of well I don't really want to take this on anymore this isn't what I you know I might have signed up to that years ago but it isn't where I am now so I think but until we have these awkward conversations we can't actually properly put some some support things in place and I think that's the real challenge is we we're not having this conversation and so we're not really talking through the issues and so we're not coming up with the solutions that we need to come up with. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. And I mean, going back to what Ming was saying about um, living in London and having um, parents in uh, another in, I think it was Gloucestershire, was it Ming? Um, I was in a very similar situation. Um, I moved down to London when I was 19. I'm, I'm an only child, by the way. 
so that complicates matters even more. But I moved down to London to study when I was 19 and ended up staying down there um, and working down there for the best part of 30 years. But I always maintained very close relationships with my parents. And um, my mum was diagnosed with cancer in 1999. And um, I helped my dad. Um, my dad was mainly the carer for, he was the principal carer for my mum. Uh, came up quite a lot. I did a lot of contract work, so I put work on hold and spent a few weeks with mum and dad when mum was had a big operation in '99, and um, while she was convalescing, and I was able to gradually sort of fit my work around her needs and dad's needs and supporting them. Um, and then when mum passed away in 2003, dad was actually quite good really for the next two years or so and but then his health and his mobility began to decline because he was getting into his mid-80s by then so the other aspect of that was that it really did take it out on me because I was traveling from London up to the Midlands which as I say is about 140 miles away but about 10 miles when you added on the journey from Ealing where I was living and um, so I was doing basically a 300 mile round trip by because I don't drive it was by train practically every weekend and there's no way that that doesn't wear you down um, over the months and the years um, I was lucky that dad um, retained most of his mental faculties um, he didn't have dementia as such um, but he had quite a lot of physical illnesses heart problems and um, respiratory problems and mobility problems so I was able to support him to a certain extent from a distance with the admin and stuff like that but um, I mean it, it I think there's quite a lot of um, people in that situation who were caring from a distance and then when you go and move as I did to look after him uh, full-time for the last 18 months of his life of course I had to leave my network of friends behind that I'd built up over that 30 years in London and um, of course, they were there, but at a distance. They, I, I could contact them, I could email them, I could phone them or whatever, but I rarely saw them. I mean, in fact, I rarely got out of the house in that 18 months, particularly the last six months or so, because he deteriorated so much. And there was no one else around. And, and I mean, I had you know, quite a, a few good friends who were really great, and they realised when I was having a bit of a downer, and they phoned me up and, and gene me up a little bit with it. But... <laughs> I mean, it, it, it really was a, a pivotal moment in my life. And I, that was interesting what Kirsty said about that's quite often when people do suddenly realise that they are ageing without that close family support. And, uh, you know, it, it really sort of brought it home to me then. And, and I was relatively young because my parents had me in their 30s. So I was only in my late 40s when that was all happening. Um, I was 49 when dad died and then of course you've got the getting back to work and can you build up relationships again and you know your, your finances take a huge hit because as I said I was um, kind of organizing my work around mum's and then dad's care needs so of course I, I cut back on the hours of paid work I was doing and eventually gave up altogether and that takes a huge chunk out of your short-term and your long-term financial security because you never quite 
managed to build that up again as far as pension contributions, personal pension. I know you get um, national insurance credits these days for, for being a, an unpaid carer, but um, only under certain circumstances where you can get carer's allowance. And not everybody can get carer's allowance. So this really brought home to me when I moved into the sort of former carer stage that it's very, very important to keep a life outside of caring even while you are a full-time carer it's very difficult i mean I, I would always advise people if they can to remain in work even if it's only very very part-time that's not possible that wasn't possible for me but um i've known other carers who that has been possible for and to be honest it's made the transition much easier and it's it's guaranteed a bit more of their long-term security and the same would go, I would say, for things like friendships, relationships. Don't isolate yourself if you possibly can. And it, it's too easy to too easy to do. But you will need those friends. You will need those relationships and those structures when your caring role ends. And if you're looking after an elderly parent, that's almost certainly going to be the outcome. It's different if you're looking after somebody your own age or younger. Um, that, you, you might still move out of a caring role if, if they move into a different um, a different era of their life, perhaps in residential accommodation or in best case scenario, if it's, if it's a child, if, if they move into, um, or a younger relative, if they, they move into a more independent sort of setting. But uh, if you're looking after elderly parents, it almost certainly ends up with you out, outliving them and you've then got maybe 30, 40, 50 years of your own life to you've got to pick up the threads and you'll never go back to exactly the same place that you were before and I think that that is a real danger that 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 is the point at which people find that what they had before isn't there and a part of what that was might be a good support network so it's it's, it's very definitely worth thinking about that while you are a carer although you've got a million and one other things to think about anyway which uh, you know I, I totally appreciate that that that's not easy I think it's also uh, adding to all of that thank you Denise I think that's so interesting to hear what you've said because it I think what we've also found recently with the I think with the pandemic because uh, we are still recording this during um, the, the pandemic um, is that people can often feel isolated by that too. So the whole the whole social bubbles and connecting with other people as well. And also just in our, our communities as well, you know, we can often feel isolated. That whole issue of, of friends, possibly as we get older, becoming grandparents. So our friendships also change and, and adjust as well. And that can become quite hard too, I think, for people to keep in touch with others who may their life circumstances change as you say and they've become their life changes your life perhaps changes in a different way because of the complexities of looking after elderly parents as well or becoming a carer and it's it's very complicated and quite emotional but it's very important to keep those connections alive with people that you can empathize with and have that support network because it takes an awful lot of mental strain and mental energy as well as the financial toll as, as well of looking after of being a carer. Michael, what, how does, does it differ in any way, the, the care system and how it works in Australia with you? Um, 
it's probably very similar. Our countries have a very similar sort of governance. Um, so, um, yeah, just, I mean, we have things like carers, allowances, um, that sort of thing. But listening to the three ladies here is just, it's almost like they're echoing what I'm going through right now um, and the thoughts that I've had. Because um, right now, my dad has dementia. My mum's had a heart attack. They're both, well, dad, dad will be 80 this year. Mum's 78. Um, and we've had to put dad into a, into a home because um, he's, he's got to that point where Ming will understand where he needs supervision 24 hours a day. You know, some of those more intimate things that he forgets to do, shall we say. But apart from that, he's, what am I, what am I doing here? You know, he, he just doesn't get it. So that, that, it, um, where I'm getting to is that as that childless person, my wife and I now, and I'm lucky enough to be in a partnership, but we are sitting there going, fuck, what does this mean for us? So the thing that, the, so we've sort of had some split roles. My wife sort of looks after the welfare of my mum from a uh, you know, personal perspective. And, and I've been doing all the admin for both mum and dad. And so to get dad into a home is not an easy process. Um, luckily, they had uh, here in Australia, I guess it's like your pension system here in Australia, we call it a superannuation system where you can, um, you know, amass wealth for when you retire. Luckily, they did pretty good there. So, um, you know, was able to get dad into a place because we're talking a lot of money. We're talking 650000 Australian dollars for him to have a place, not to mention the daily care fees. So, um, but, uh, you know, as Denise was talking about, you know, power of attorney. Yeah, I got that power of attorney. And I'm wading through the I'm wading through the system as a fifty odd year old guy, and I look at my parents right now, and think there's absolutely no way in the world, no way in the world that they could actually comprehend what I am doing right now. So it 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 scares me from that perspective, but of course I'm now forearmed, and my wife and I are talking about strategies for when we get older. But one of the things that um, one of my fears for our greater community, like Kirsty was saying, is unless we start talking about this, it's going to creep up on you all and it's going to slap you right in the face and you're just going to go, shit, what happened? And, um, you know, so I'm looking at it through a lens of a, you know, 50 year old man who with, with, um, you know, with parents like that. But, you know, we've got a lot of people around the community, you know, in their late 30s, their 40s, and maybe their 50s who, you know, they've still got Welsh parents that are oblivious to this. And they need to be switched on. We all need to be switched on about this. Because um, we, you know, we as a community could do some real good here. But unless we talk, like Kirsty says, unless we talk about it, we, you know, nothing's going to happen. And unfortunately, 
we're in a community that is fractured. We're in a community where people have built these massive walls around themselves so that they, as a way of protection, um, they don't, as a general rule, cultivate friendships that, um, that Denise was talking about because of that security blanket and feeling isolated. So yeah, Kirsty, I certainly understand it's a tough, tough job. But um, one of the things that, that I'm passionate about is that we, this generation right now, really needs to put the work in. We could do something really good. We could do something amazing. So we need to start talking about it. And I'm going to stop talking now because I can feel the emotion well enough. <laughs> no, but I think um, that... And one of the things, having said that, you know, I wasn't going to talk too much about the messaging, but I'm going to talk about messaging we talked about yesterday, because one of the one of the things that was which I thought was so good when we were talking yesterday about the messaging was that thing about if you have a system that works for people aging without children, if you have a system that works for people who don't have any family support, it works for everybody. Because a system that relies on family to make it work is a broken system. You know, I don't know if you have the same thing in Australia, but over here we have these things called care navigators because we've created a system so complicated that we actually pay people to navigate people around it. I mean, how ridiculous is that? So you're absolutely right. I think we do have a real opportunity to do something. Um, and one of the real one of the real things is how do you get people to listen? because certainly when I first started to talk about this people didn't want to listen and working out why they didn't want to listen it has been kind of like one of the big the big things you know what what are the pushbacks that you get from people you know often you know people will say to me you know well people aging without children can't rely on their children to look I don't want my children to look after me I don't expect my children to look after me the thing is people say that often the people who said that to me had 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 no health problems you know the people who were saying that to me were people generally in their you know 30s 40s 50s they've got no health problems they've got no no kind of issues um and often they're not talking about and often they're people who don't understand the care system um and i always remember going on woman's hour with ming and when you're on woman's hour they people can like email in and stuff and i remember someone emailed in when we were talking and um they read it out on air and it was something like you know well you know i don't expect my children to look after me i don't want my children to look after me i didn't have my children for that reason and i remember i think you said something to, you said something like my mum would have said that my mum would absolutely have said that and she would have said that right to the very end of her life, you know. I mean, she didn't even know me for the last six years of her life at all. And, and, and her knowledge of who I was in relation to her had, had started to corrode, I would say, you know, even a decade before that, really. But the fact is, I was still there doing all those things for her. So if you had asked her, I mean, certainly she was one of those people who would have said when she was much younger. Firstly, she, she often said to me when I was a child, never put me in a home. But that was because she had never known anyone who had been in a home and she never understood why they would have to be. So it was just, you know, and people will always say, often say this quite flippantly, never put me in a home, just shoot me. If I get that bad, just shoot me, ha ha. And you think, yeah, but you can't actually. 
you know, you, you can joke about that, but, but when it actually comes down to it, firstly, if you have something like dementia, you probably aren't going to realise that you have any care needs at all, as my mum didn't. Um, some people do, and I think those tend to be people who have younger onset who are more aware of a sudden change in their capacity. Whereas for someone like my mum, who began to... I would say when my dad died, she was in her early 60s. He died young. He was only 52 and he had cancer. Um, and I think from that time onwards, looking back, that, that emotional shock started some early symptoms for her. But they were very gradual over a very long time. And during a lot of that time, she was fine as, as far as her daily living was concerned. But there were things increasingly that she struggled with in terms of memory and um, capacity and later on paranoid symptoms and delusions and things like that. Now she wasn't aware of those at all. And it, at the lower end of it, you can kind of get over it if there is someone there to basically mop up after you, who's there to kind of, you know, cover up the things that you, that you are not able to do for yourself just to support you in a, in a low level way. But as things get more and more extreme, um, you know, you might still be un totally unaware of it. So even when my mum was bedbound and with very advanced dementia, she had no idea that any of that was happening to her. She had no idea where she was or why she was there. Um, I was turning up even when she'd been in care. She was in care for over eight years. So you think I had to manage all of that. I had to go through the trauma of getting her into a home, which is it's hard for anyone. It's hard if you have a lot of family around you and you do it collectively. But for me on my own doing that, I found that extremely traumatic. It was one of the worst things I've ever had to do in my life. Um, but I got her settled in that home and she did well in there. But then I had to move her because the management of the home changed. So I had to go through it again. I had to arrange all of the finance. I had to go to court of protection because, again, she hadn't. She was one of those people, like a lot of people, who didn't want to contemplate her own mortality, even when she had mental capacity. So she was very much of the view that, well, I trust you with anything. You can just do whatever you like. Here's my bank card. You go, you know, you bring up the bank, you write my checks for me. But she was never willing to actually make any legal arrangements for it because to her, she was superstitious and it meant you're, you know, you know, somehow something bad is going to happen if you admit this. And also she just was, um, she, she had a mental block about doing anything that was to do with admin and finance and legal. So I would try and persuade her to do those things um, over the years, but there, there was a big block with her about doing anything which actually gave me power of attorney while she had mental capacity. So when she lost that, and I needed control of her finances to pay for her care, I had to go through all of the court procedure, which was very lengthy, it's expensive, it's more difficult than power of attorney. So I would say to anyone who has, has the mental capacity now, please think about this now, don't be squeamish, um, make some proper arrangements while you have your own choices because if you leave it too late you won't have any choice and whoever is left will have to do it for you it will be worse for them it will be worse for you it will be expensive for everyone um, but you know but she would still have said if you had asked her when she had capacity she would always have said um, I don't expect my daughter to do that I would never want you to do that, Ming. But then if I had said to her, well, who is going to do it then? She would just not want to think about it. You know, oh, it'll just never happen. I'll just keel over. I'll just pop my clogs. You know, she would often say that to me quite flippantly. Oh, one day I'll just pop my clogs. Um, but she didn't. You know, she lived for over 10 years with very severe mental incapacity. 
And that's a situation she never anticipated nor planned for, and she closed her mind to it, and I had to deal with it all, unfortunately. I think that's oh, I totally level. understand that, Ming. Um, you know, uh, just, yeah. I was lucky that my parents actually, uh, when my dad first got dementia, the first thing they did was they got power of attorney, which was fantastic, because I couldn't actually comprehend what, what I'd have to do to 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 get that first compared to what I've had to go through now just to administer their lives I totally understand that I've got to be honest I mean, sorry Sarah, that's all right no no I'll stop you carry I was going to say, yeah, it is a, a huge uh, responsibility, isn't it? And it's something that people don't want to think about. The, the whole situation of growing older, I and mean, people don't want to talk about growing older or think about growing older anyway. Um, we all feel much younger probably than our biological ages. I know I do. Um, but the other thing is that, um, I mean, they don't want to, they don't want to think about growing old alone. That is it's just a horrible, it's almost like a taboo thought in our society isn't it but i think we're being hit also um from a carer's point of view by a double whammy here because if one thing has been driven home to me during this pandemic is that carers and i'm talking now about the unpaid carers family carers um are basically unrecognized we seem to have disappeared from view during the pandemic when people talk about carers i mean people automatically think about the care workers um, all those poor carers who were not being treated on a par with the um, NHS workers uh, and uh, you know they're not getting the PPE they're not, not getting all the stuff to be you know what, what they need to be working in the care homes and, and in the community if they're domiciliary care workers but I think I read a statistic somewhere from um, age, um, not age UK sorry carers UK that said that there's an approximate four million people have taken on unpaid care responsibilities since the beginning of the pandemic mainly due to lack of services withdrawal of services that were previously there such as day centers and, and other organizations that have dropped out of providing their hands-on care or the face-to-face -face services so that adds up to about 13 and a half million estimated unpaid carers in the uk now that that to me is a hell of a lot of people to be ignoring particularly when you stop and think if you stop and think about it at all as most people don't seem to that if it, even a fraction of those people step back from their caring responsibilities the nhs would probably fall over a lot faster than it would have fallen over with a, a really sharp peak of the coronavirus but it's kind of because that's not going to happen because people are so if you're a carer by your very nature by definition you are caring and you are going to do everything you possibly can to keep that person out of hospital um i mean they may come to a stage as ming was saying where you know the care needs are such that they need to go into residential care nursing care or whatever that happened to my dad at the very end of his life he had continuing care for the last couple of weeks of his life um basically hospital care um but in a care home setting but if there's going to be because of demographic changes and what we've been talking about uh a lack you know almost a missing generation because people now perhaps only have one child where in the past they would have had two three four or whatever 
then that situation is going to come about by default anyway. That there's going to be, uh, you can't get away from, from the numbers demographically. There's going to be a generation there that are not going to have the support coming in from the younger members of their family. So it's something we've, we've got to, it comes back, we've got to talk about it. It's not an issue that's going away as far as I can see. No, it's not. And I mean, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I probably have a slightly different angle on the unpaid carers thing, because I would say, I wouldn't say, I personally wouldn't say they were ignored because I saw quite a lot of stories in the media about unpaid family carers and what they were doing. I don't think that it's the carers are ignored. I think it's just they're completely taken for granted because every story was basically like, oh, these people, aren't they wonderful? Where would we be without them? You know, isn't it fantastic what they do? We're not actually going to put anything in place to support them. We're not actually going to give them a proper carer's allowance. We're not actually going to do this. We're not actually going to do that. We're just, well, we're just going to go, aren't they brilliant? And aren't they brilliant isn't anywhere near enough. And I think you're absolutely right in that there is a complete there is a complete lack of recognition and understanding about the reality of what the system would look like if, as you say, if every unpaid carer, every unpaid family carer suddenly down tools and said, we're not going to do this. The whole system, I'd give it about 48 hours before it went. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting that you know, every policy document that I read will say older people in their care, family and carers. So there they, so they, so they, it's recognised in policy, but it doesn't actually seem to make any difference further down the line. And the other thing, of course, is that because there, and it kind of just goes with this hand in hand with this assumption that all older people have carers and family when, when we know they don't. So I think there's, there's a couple of, there's a couple of issues. There's a, there's a couple of issues with it. Uh, can, can I just say, I think we, Kirsty and I have talked about this a number of times, but, but I think, you know, that one of the reasons why this is never addressed in policy is because it is perceived to be largely an issue that affects women primarily. And we all know that there are um, male carers as well. We, are no, we all know that there are men who don't have family or children. But I think overwhelmingly, statistically, it is still women who do the majority of unpaid care and also paid care. Um, and also, it's still the fact that in politics, um, it's largely men who make policy. So while there's been a lot of talk about social care and a lot of clapping for everybody, you know, I think until, until we have people in policy making positions who have experienced this firsthand, I think it, it's, it's always something that's always on the back burner. I mean, if you look at, for instance, even how care homes have been treated during the pandemic, even the ministers who are responsible for that can glibly say, oh, we put a protective ring around care homes without remotely even understanding how care homes work because they're men and they've maybe visited once on a nice visit where it's all been clean and tidy and somebody's made you a cup of tea and you've cut a ribbon. Um, but I think that in-depth understanding of what it's like to look after somebody on your own at home until you can't do it anymore and then to support them in a care home for maybe 10-15 years and you know be, be fully cognizant of what the routine of that home and how people work in that home and how dependent people are even within a care home on support from family coming in from outside. I think this is why it never gets 
actually written into policy. So people who do consultations, they'll write reports about it, but when it comes down to actually supporting people not to have to do those things, um, the money is never there, the will is never there, because it's always perceived as being something that generally women do behind closed doors, just like we still perceive it as being women will look after the kids, women will do all of that kind of you know, social labor, um, and we don't actually have to put anything in place for it because it will get done anyway and it's just part of life it's just like you know you get up you brush your teeth obviously you're gonna you know look after your kids wipe their nose wipe your mum's bum uh, and I think this is how politicians see it as being well um, we know that occasionally we have to say thank you and we have to give them a clap but actually we don't have to make any political um, structures for it we don't have to actually put any funding in place because we just take for granted yes as Kirsty says we know it's there but we're not really interested in it because we just see it as being like well you know it's just part of life isn't it you know people have kids they pop them out you know they don't necessarily expect to be um, supported on a daily basis with the fact that they've got kids but but for an adult who is completely dependent on somebody else who is never going to get more independent they're going to get less dependent less independent um, I think politicians don't really take that on board and that's why it's always on the back burner because politicians come election time are always looking at things which appeal to their fan base which is generally um, cuts in taxation, um, things to do with young people, jobs, schools, um, universities, um, you know, yes, childcare, um, because that's something that they think everybody experiences. Now, again, we're talking about one in five people who don't experience that. That's 20% of the entire population who are being um, just glided over, really, because it's always assumed that, well, they'll muck along somehow. And, and I think that's why it never gets it never gets really addressed because politicians don't personally experience it. Or at least politicians at policy making level. I mean, I think we all know a lot of good backbenchers um, in social care who are genuine people who really do understand and who have tried their best through successive governments to make make change. But when it all comes down to who actually gets those top jobs, people like Matt Hancock, Jeremy Hunt, you know, um, it, it, it just never, it just never actually ends up being somebody whose heart is in the right place. It's always somebody who is politically on message for the party. And that's why we always get left behind. So that's carers in general, never mind people who are carers who don't have family themselves and, you know, people who don't have any of those informal structures in place. Yeah, if I could just say, yeah, going um, going back to the thing about the policy as well. Um, right back at the beginning of the pandemic, sort of when you're going, you know, going back to about the second week in March, when all the stuff started appearing online on the gov.uk website, um, there was all the stuff as being mentioned about education settings and childcare and um, hospital visiting and everything, how it was changing. It took four weeks for there to be anything at all put on the gov.uk website about unpaid carers. And that was only after Carers UK and the Carers Trust had issued a joint statement and taken it to the um, Department of Social Care and said, look, you've got to put something on there about carers. And there was very, very little about contingencies. Um, it was all kind of, oh, make an emergency plan for if you're taken ill or if you have to self-isolate. 
nothing about the fact that and a hell of a lot of carers are actually the they are the contingency plan they are the care plan of last resort so they're not going to have anything available family-wise as we were saying they might have been able to get something from the local authorities but the local authorities put out a statement um saying that they've been given uh, emergency measures to actually not provide the same statutory level of care that they would under normal circumstances, which was kind of understandable. But again, it was assumed there's always somebody that a carer can go to. Yeah, I think that's very that's very true. And I think, I mean, for all of this, this kind of comes back to, to what Michael was, was saying earlier, which is that, you know, what are we going to do about this? You know, we are the one group that doesn't have anyone to lobby for it. We don't have an organisation, you know, carers have Carers UK and the Carers Trust, there's Age UK, there's Independent Age, but, you know, as, as everybody knows by now, I was, I was never able to get funding for AWOC and, and, you know, so they were, you know, we were never able to, to create an organisation that lobbies for people in this position. And so, you know, like we need to find a way of being able to lobby collectively, um, because I think, you know, as Michael said, there is there is power in this community and there are numbers in this community, you know, as, as Ming said, like it's 20% of people over the age of 50 in, in the UK, that's around four and a half million people. That's a lot of people. Um, so, you know, I think we do need to find a way of, you know, how do we find a way forward through this? And I think part of the way we find a way forward through this is, is that we do have we try and have the conversations and we try and do things with a collective voice because I think it's too easy. It's too easy to ignore individual people, isn't it? It's much, much harder to, to ignore a collective group of, of people talking together. I think also that, that uh, so, so many things though um, have to start with people recognising that what's perceived as the norm is not the norm. Because even things like during the pandemic, 111 in the early days, this is with, um, for people in the UK, the non-emergency service, where, which was supposed to be the first port of call for people with medical um, issues to see whether or not you actually may have COVID. And the advice that was given to people then, and I know people who, like myself, live alone, um, of my age experienced this were, were calling feeling quite quite severely ill and were told don't call us and don't call 99 unless you can't breathe or you're unconscious now you think well how are you supposed to do that if you're unconscious you can't do anything if you can't breathe you can't make a phone call and what they meant was wait until you're that bad and get the person who lives with you to do that so if you don't have a person who lives with you who is monitoring you who is able to advocate for you what are you supposed to do? And there have been cases of people being found, you know, dead at home because they've waited too long, um, or, or indeed people who were calling repeatedly and being told you're not, you're not bad enough yet. I mean, I had a friend who's living on her own who actually ended up in hospital, but for several weeks before that, she was ringing that number and they kept telling her, you're not bad enough yet. And it was only when various of us persuaded her to actually insist that she had a number of symptoms which at the times were not recognized as being um, significant, but they were quite severe, like gastric symptoms. Um, they finally got her a GP appointment and the GP told her, get yourself to hospital. But again, she had to get herself to hospital. She didn't have anyone who could take her. You were not supposed to use public transport. 
you know, what do you do if you don't have anyone who can drive you? But all of those policies were predicated on an assumption that the norm is a family living behind closed doors. So if anybody gets severely ill, there will be another person who can do the emergency work for them. And, and I think we have, to, we have to get people to acknowledge that for a lot of people that just is not the case. And even though statistically it might be more normal than not, um, you know, we have to on a policy level get people to admit that there are a whole range of possibilities now um, with how people live, not always from choice. So again, you know, I think there's a, a judgment call as well that a lot of people can be quite judgmental that, well, if you don't have those support symptoms, that systems, that's your fault for not choosing to have children or not choosing to have a partner. And, you know, people can be in that situation for all sorts of circumstances, not least because they spend a lot of time caring for other people. Um, you know, maybe a lot more selflessly than people who have who have a lot of support around them. So I think there's a lot of um, preconceptions that have to be challenged. And yes, we do need a lobby organisation to do that collectively. So much to do, isn't there? <laughs> but it's, it's quite it's, overwhelming, isn't it? It's like, yeah, it's, it's yeah. not until you start picking at the surface, you realise mm. how much is going on. I mean, it's sort of, somebody touched on it before forgive me I can't remember who it was but they sort of said 30s and 40 year olds aren't really thinking about this issue or having to engage with it I mean obviously I, I am engaging with it I'm in my 40s but it's because I saw what happened to my granddad and he had dementia too and although he had a family the treatment he received wasn't that fantastic and it at that even at that age when I was in my 30s I'm thinking this could be me this could be me this could be me and that's why I'm I'm passionate about actually how do we you know how do we start to address this and I think it starts with the fact that the realization that we've got no one else to rely on but ourselves to start looking at this issue talking about it and thinking about well how do we how do we get this organized so that we are starting to sort of say well hello over here we are here we need you to start making these policies and these decisions because we're not going to be ignored anymore but it's making that inroads isn't it into doing that but also doing it with that compassion, isn't it? That we, it's it's so easy, I think, with any subject that you talk about around childlessness, that it can devolve into them and us. And that lack of empathy is so hard on the most basics of subjects. You know, it can just simply be something very simple, like I something's been said on the television, a programme, something about something. To actually then take that to the level of, okay, this is a serious situation that affects so many people. You know, that, it's, that engagement has got to be there from the other side. I, I'm using air quotes here for benefit of people that, that obviously can't see me, but it is that other side um, and having a joined up thinking because I think so many decisions that are made in government and in care seem to be made by people who have that traditional family set up. It's almost its own form of, of prejudice somewhere along the line. It's not opening up that conversation. I think absolutely, yes, it's got to be a collective voice. And then I come from a family where we don't talk about that sort of thing. Well, my mum does, but other parts of my family don't. And it's largely just ignored. Um, yet we've all got direct experiences of it through grandparents and parents but it's a really difficult conversation to have um, because it involves very 
personal things you know intimate care end of the day you know funerals it's not quite so simple as saying oh well, again i'm just going to a care home you know and again actually there's that whole thing that's been popping up in my head because one of my plans um is i i know roughly where i want to go and live when in my next sort of bit i've picked out the place i want to go to so i've got some degree of control but part of me thinks that's absolving other people that i know of that responsibility and actually by absolving them of that responsibility they need to have some responsibility because i still exist i don't want to go to the other end of the country and then be that but oh yeah oh she lives in cornwall she cut herself off you know whatever they get spoiler alert cornwall sorry cornwall but you know it's it's that it's by creating it with our own community we've got to also have that conversation with people outside of those communities so that they take that responsibility too, which adds another level of complexity to all of this as well. Anyway, that's my, that was my run. I was just sitting there thinking I made a plan, but actually I'm, I've made a plan, but I've, I haven't, really a few people know about it you two sort of know about it because we've talked about it off air but yeah you think well that's just me making my own decisions it doesn't cover everything that everyone here has said particularly um as i was you ming and your mother and and that worry of dementia because it's 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 popped up in my family numerous times in previous generations and i think oh god you know is there a like a, a gene pool here i need to worry about i don't know i'm not sure what the future holds and there's only so much i think we can make those decisions and prepare for those things ourselves and we do have to have people we trust and trust is our trust or my trust in other people has been eroded so much because of being childless it's constantly daily i think at certain points um can feel like it's been chipped away at and finding people to trust to look after you when you get older is also incredibly hard there's a whole kind of um psychological issue i think mental health issue here as well um it's big it's big it's fucking huge <laughs> pardon the language i mean it, it is, is. So. And, and i think you nailed it the trust the fact that you know we are seeing ourselves as a community and it's us and them and it's it's you know it's every trigger that you've ever you can ever have thrown at you is thrown at you because you, you you know you lose that trust in people don't you and so trusting them to look after you in later life is a big stretch it is it's massive it yeah. is when i think about the sort of level of care that um my late father-in-law required that my my grandmother required various grandparents have required um it's something really that i think sometimes you think well that's only what children could provide but then if you look like a grandmother who fought rigorously against care absolutely completely had no plans nothing in place whatsoever and absolutely refused to ask for help then that's also a battle as well and yeah, i'm very much similarly minded to my grandmother would i would i resist all of these um Mm. it's a whole kind of thing isn't it it's very very difficult i think to sort of yeah to pull that all together Kirsty, can i ask a question of you well let's ask a question of all, 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 all our three guests today if there's one outcome that 
one, sorry, <laughs> it's a cruel number, one outcome that you could have from this podcast, and I know that there's other things going on, has, um, World Child this week is having an, an ageing day as well. What would you like that to be? What would be that force for change, the force for good that you would like to come out of conversations that we are having here and in other um, platforms? To, to, to talk about it, to have the conversation, to not shy away from it, because in our, our society generally is extremely ageist. We're very bad at talking about the fact we're going to get older. We're very, what we tend to assume is that we'll basically carry on as we are and then one day we'll just die. And we won't face, you know, generally speaking, we won't face up to the fact that for most of us, if we're lucky to live to a, to a good old age, you know, hopefully we will. The chances are is that the end of your life, the last kind of couple of months, couple of years, you are going to need help. And being in denial about that isn't helping you and it isn't helping anybody. So I would say if the one outcome would be for people to start having conversations about it, that I think, you know, start thinking about it, start having conversations about it. That's the really important thing. Thank you, Kirsty. Ming? Yeah. I would echo that. And also to say, as I've just said a bit earlier, I think um, it, in wider society, I think for everyone to acknowledge, but particularly policymakers, anyone who has any kind of political or social clout, is to acknowledge that the norm is no longer your 2.5 kids and people dying you know, of an acute illness in their early 70s, because my grandparents did die of uh, you know, cancer and heart disease, respectively, in their early 70s. Um, and that's, that's generally not what happens now. If you look at my mum, she had another 20 years of declining mental capacity. So I think to get people to acknowledge that norms are no longer the same as they were a generation or two ago, and to acknowledge that that's very often not by choice either. It, it can happen for all sorts of different reasons. And, and plan for all of those things, both on a personal level and a social and political level. Thank you. Denise? Um, yeah, very much, you know, the sort of thing that Kirsty and Ming have just said, but I think, you know, basically distilling it down to the fact that it, it can't any longer be assumed that everybody has somebody to fight their corner and that they can call upon um, and who will come to their rescue. That, that simply isn't the case for so many people and won't be going forward. So recognition really is, I think, is a good starting point. And then you can start moving on to, you know, looking at the solutions for it and, um, you know, how we can accommodate and, and not leave this group of 20% of people over 50, whatever it was, Ming, um, so that they don't just get left behind. Yeah, I think that's it. I, I was just looking at some of the statistics that have come up from, where are we? The Aging Well Without Children and about the numbers of people. I think it might just be worth putting a couple of those just speaking about those here in case there are we do know we have people who listen to the podcast who have children of their own and might not be familiar with all of this um but the statistics that i have from that are that there are um 90 of lgbt people are estimated to be aging without children 
that 85% of people are estimated to be aging without children with disabilities. Um, that the number of older people with disabilities who live alone and have no child is predicted to increase rapidly by 80% between 2007 and 2032, which isn't that long away. Um, and that by 232 million people over the age of 65 will not be parents. And currently, as we've said already, 20% of people over the age of 50 are currently not parents. That's UK data which is it's shocking that actually there isn't enough conversation about that and I've always been just so angry and so um, as I'm sure you are as well Katia that there wasn't that funding for ageing well without children it's so utterly needed and so very very important and that that really just has to change because this you say we've got to keep talking I hope that the podcast has helped to talk about that more and that we can bring more conversation um, to that as well um, Ming, you wanted to refer to um, the Our Voices report as well. Did you want to just talk briefly about that? Yes, this, this was a report that, um, that Kirsty um, was instrumental in, in um, creating back in 2016. It was funded by the Beth Johnson Foundation and Joseph Rowntree. And if you look that up, I think it's, it's, it's now active again as a link on Kirsty's own website. Um, I've also got it on my blog, Dementia Just Ain't Sexy. It's on one of the reference links there. But it's a very good in-depth report. There you are, Kirsty's holding it up for you there. I'm sure she can send you, send you a, a PDF for that. Um, because it's got a lot of very good info in there. It's got um, case histories, including my own story. Um, it, just explaining, actually, how people may be experiencing a life growing older without children which is not by choice because I think a lot of people make assumptions that you have chosen not to have kids and that was a selfish choice um, but you know that report actually gives a, a broad cross-section of people who have been in that situation through different means um, some of whom might have had children in earlier years but they've lost contact with them or they've died or they're disabled and they're not going to be able to look after them in older life um, but it's also got analysis, it's got a lot of information um, looking into this in depth. So I think that's a very good resource that having, you know, having produced that, Kirsty, it's a shame if, not, if more people don't know about it. So please go and have a look and have a read because I think you'll find a lot of um, interesting factual information there if you're looking for stats of how many people this affects, um, the different kinds of situations they might find themselves in. Um, do go and have a look there because it's all it's all there and it's all good work that's already been done. Yeah, it's an incredible resource. We'll pop it onto all of the show notes as well, so there'll be a link to that as well, and along with any other resources. It is a fantastic read. It's very, very, very informative as well, and it's also got I'd say the stats, but it's also got case histories as well, which I think is really important. That personal um, reflection, I think, is incredibly important with this. So something I'd like to say is um, I can't help it because I'm a bloke and I just go into solution mode every single time. But um, so to our, I'm, I'm imploring to our listeners right now, you've heard the conversations going on here. You can't pull the blanket over your head and pretend it's not there because it is. It's real. And I, I just can't put my vocabulary around how much to, to emphasize this as, as much as I can. 
But one of the other things that I'd like to say, and it's probably a little bit out of turn right now because haven't done my research, but the power is with us all to sort this out. And the girls and I have talked about um, what what goes along with this in some respects is is legacy. One of the biggest conversations that we hear around the community is what do I leave behind? Because we're not leaving the obvious. And this is this could be that time. This could be the legacy that we leave behind for all the generations of childless people that come after us is to is to put something in place to help us manage our later years. Um, from my from my perspective, I see a number of things that need to happen. Obviously, we need to lobby. So we we need to we need to come together as a group. We need to come together as. Tw can you imagine if if we are twenty percent of the human population? We are huge. The power that we could have would be immense. God, I should run for president. Let elect her. But but seriously, it, it is massive. It is immense. One of the other things I think we need to start looking at is: Do we do we do something ourselves? Again, this is just me down in Australia, not having read a research. But um, I was talking with a childless lady last yesterday, actually from Australia, and and she has a very similar view that do we need advocacy now? having just been through or in the midst of, you know, um, advocating for my parents, you know, it's, again, I can't, I, I just can't get my vocabulary around how um, important that is. And we've talked about trust. We've talked about who, who is going to manage us? Because when we look through the lens of a 50 or 40 year old person, it all seems fine. It seems great. But I've got a mum now who, who can't make a decision for whatever reason. Well, you know, so what do you want for dinner, mum? Oh, I don't know. She can't even make that up. So to try, you know, um, to try and get her to do sophisticated financial uh, transactions or um, arrange the self-managed super fund that they had to, to then pay for dad's... Uh, nursing home for instance there's no one in the world she could have done that so i see that as another thing advocacy and one of the other things that i hear a lot about is is co-living as well so it is living in a community where there are people like you that that could be that support network be that friends network might be pie in the sky but as a community, we need to start from somewhere. And the first thing we need to do, like Christy said, we need to talk about this. And we need, we can't, can't deny it. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Full Stop Podcast. Your hosts were Michael Hughes, Sarah Lawrence and Berenice Smith. You can find out more about the podcast on our website, www.thefullstoppod.com. You'll also find resources, episode information, and more details about us and how to be a guest. Our newsletter also shares details of our podcasts, community news, and other events. 
The website also shares all of our social media links, and you can find us on Twitter at the Full Stop Pod One, on Facebook the Full Stop Podcast, and on Instagram at the Full Stop Podcast. Thank you very much for listening.